0: And let's pray one more time. O God, our gracious Father, of whose gift alone comes wisdom and understanding, bless the one who teaches and the one who learns that all may look to you the fountain of all wisdom. Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the faithful, enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. And tonight especially we praise and magnify your name for all your servants who have finished their course in your faith and in your fear. And we pray that we too would hear the joyful voice, come blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Grant this, O merciful father, for the sake of your son Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen. Well, once again, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you here tonight, and it's especially a pleasure to talk with you about St. Augustine. I've been walking with Augustine for many years now, and those of you who know me well uh, know that it's a rarity in conversation before I bring up Augustine's name in one form or another. I've never stopped reading him. I'm always reading him, and uh, I, I think that he speaks to my heart like few others do. When I, was, uh, when I was 20 years old, I purchased a very large volume uh, that had a collection of classic authors that had four authors in it. There was Augustine, there was Brother Lawrence, there was Thomas Akempis, there was uh, Julian of Norwich, and there was Bernard of Clairvaux. And all of these authors are profound in their own way, and I read them all. I, I devoured all of these authors. Uh, but as I read through Augustine... <laughs> As I read through his confessions, I realized that I was in the presence of one who towered above them all. And um, I, I want to say so much tonight. There's so much that I want to say and so much that I was planning to say and I found that I've had to kill my darlings and I've had to cut and to hack and to prune and to, uh, to bring it all into, into something manageable this evening and to home in on something that I think is especially Especially germane and significant for you tonight. So, what I want to do is to begin with some background biographical information on Augustine so that you have a sense of who he is and where he has come from and have some sense of Augustine's story. Augustine was born in 354 in the town of uh, Tagaste. Augustine, this is North Africa, and Augustine was of Berber stock. And uh, it's important to note that perhaps the greatest theologian of all time was uh, a native African. And I think this is especially important today, especially in our Anglican context, when there's been so much capitulation in the church that we've needed to go back and to look to the bishops of Africa to find out how to do gospel work faithfully. Augustine's father, Patricius, was a Roman pagan. It wasn't until much later on his deathbed that he was baptized, a late conversion. But his mother, Monica, was a strong and devout and faithful follower of Christ. And when Augustine, as a very, very young man, began to wander down prodigal paths, God used the prayers and he used the tears and he used the sorrows and the agonies of a godly mother to bring that Augustine back home. In his confessions, Augustine tells us when Monica went to see a bishop, To share her profound sorrow and suffering on account of her son's waywardness uh, and to encourage that bishop to talk to Augustine, to persuade him to come back into the church, she wouldn't take no for an answer. In fact, as you read the confessions, you get the sense that the bishop was getting a little bit annoyed, just leave me alone, finally. And she was pleading with him and entreating with him and crying, and finally he says to her, woman, it can't be that a child of these tears should be lost. Even so, the conversion for Monica seemed a long time in coming. Augustine studied to be a a reader, a a master of public speaking, and if you spend any time reading Augustine's sermons, you quickly realize what a powerful communicator he was. In fact, much later in life, Augustine had to subdue his craft, uh, and often he would just sit in order that his preaching wouldn't be by the persuasion of his rhetoric, but would be that by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. He had to deliberately subdue his rhetorical, his rhetorical craft. Well, he studied to be a, a, a rhetor and he eventually made his way to Carthage to perfect his craft. And it's in Carthage that two very important things take place. First of all, Augustine becomes captivated by the theater. Augustine becomes captivated by the theater, and in that devotion to the theater, he finds himself sunk in a sensuality and in a depravity for which the theatrical shows were infamous. In fact, in many ways, it's not very different from today. There's nothing new under the sun, as the saying goes. For years leading up to this moment in time, Augustine had struggled with lust. He had struggled with lustful desire. It was one of his... Uh, most, if not the besetting sin in Augustine's life. And now with the theater to entice him and to aggravate, aggravate that lust within even more, Augustine plummets. He plummets headlong into unbridled uh, sexuality and lust. It becomes his God. He lives to exercise his sexual desire. That's the first thing that happens in Carthage. The second is this. In the midst of all this concupiscence, or lasciviousness, as he might term it, Augustine comes across a book. He finds a book. It's not the Bible, but it's a copy of a book by a a Roman philosopher and statement whose name was Cicero. Um, The book was called the Hortensius. It's now lost. In fact, all that we know, or most of what we know about the Hortensius comes from Augustine, largely, and what he reports uh, about it. But what we do know about the Hortensius, this book by Cicero, is that it was about happiness. And the happiness that Cicero describes is not to be found in following our sexual desire, not to be found in following our libido into sexual excess, but it's to be found in giving into our mind in the pursuit of wisdom. And Augustine is absolutely taken by Cicero, and he thinks that he sees a way out of the miry bog of his lust, and so Cicero wins Augustine over to the philosophical life. And so he follows us for a while, but even so, Augustine finds that he's still unsatisfied. Even Cicero, after these hopes of discovering the, the pursuit of happiness and philosophy, doesn't satisfy him. He's tried, and he's tried, and he's tried, and he's tried, but he just can't get no satisfaction. Hey, 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 that's what I say. <laughs> he then tries to read the Bible. He goes to the Bible, but he finds that it's too unsophisticated. It's too plain and too simple. Cicero seems to have ruined Uh, Augustine's appetite for anything less sophisticated and stylistically elegant as Cicero's writings. Augustine's developed a taste for the urbane, and the scripture, he thinks, is just stylistically uh, inferior. And so what does he do? With the Bible not quite scratching the itch, Augustine turns to a form of spirituality that he deems has more sophistication. He turns to a dualistic or a Gnostic sect called the Manichees, the followers of mani. Now, those children who are here tonight, when I say mani, you might think of the great mammoth from Ice Age. Well, this Manny was, was a different kind of Manny. He was a third century prophet from the, the, uh, the, the Persian area, uh, area. and uh, mani took big swaths, big sections of the New Testament, and he interpreted them through a Gnostic lens so that anything that had to do with the material world, the material creation, all of matter was synonymous with with evil. We can imagine what happens to the doctrine of the incarnation when all matter and all creation is necessarily evil. And beyond that, Manny taught that good and evil were co-eternal principles, locked in everlasting struggle with each other and a number of periods of, of gain and loss, gain and loss, back and forth between the realms of dark and the realms of light. And here you should hear echoes of J.J. Of, uh, J. Abram, right? There's been an awakening. Have you felt at the dark side and the light? The Millennium Falcon flares into view and we all cheer and clap our hands. Well, this is all coming. This is all coming from this Gnostic dualism that the Manichaeans represented. Manichaeanism had a form of Christianity But it denied its power, it denied the absolute sovereignty of the one God who created all things and steers all history and shapes all events and overrules all evil for his glory and for his master plan. Tolkien got it right in his great myth, right? It's because of Melkor's discordant tune that the creation gets more beautiful, not less. Because God overrules all evil. He's not in competition with it. And so for a period of time then, Augustine is teaching rhetoric in in Carthage. He's teaching young people how to speak, how to be orators. And then he goes to Rome. And then he goes to Milan. And uh, all this time, he's a follower of the Manichaean way. But eventually, Augustine loses the appetite for that as well. The disenchantment comes along, and it has to do with a man that he meets in Milan. Remember that Augustine is a teacher of oratory. He's teaching people how to speak, how to, how to be uh, uh, rhetoricians. And for professional reasons, he feels compelled to go and listen to a man who has a great reputation in the city for being a preacher, for being a powerful preacher, This man was named Ambrose. He was the Bishop of Milan, and everybody regarded him for his uh, his, uh, capacity to preach. Well, Augustine walks in, and he sits down to listen to Ambrose preach. And as he does so, he experiences something he's never experienced before. As he listens, Augustine feels that he's under some magnetic spell. The net surrounds him. He is pulled in as he listens not only to incredibly polished rhetoric, but compelling content as well. And so Augustine continues to go back to listen to Ambrose, to listen to him preach, and to bathe himself not only in that beautiful rhetoric, but to bathe himself in stirring, compelling doctrine. And as he continues to do this, Augustine finds that his heart and his mind are being strangely warmed every time that he hears Ambrose preach. And he finds himself increasingly convinced of this way and this truth, and this life." But he still held back. He couldn't commit himself to the Lord, for Augustine could not, as hard as he tried, free himself from the bonds of his lust. He'd already sired a son in Carthage with, uh, with a concubine, and in Milan he took another mistress. He was consumed with sexual appetite, and he couldn't let it go. Later on, he confesses a prayer that he gave to the Lord. Uh, He offered to God, Oh, Lord, give me chastity and give me self-control. But not quite yet. I was afraid, he wrote, that God would cure me too soon of the disease of lust, which I wanted satisfied, not quelled. But soon enough came the turning point. And the answer to all of his mother's prayers And all of her tears came rushing in. And he recounts it in Book 8 of his book, The Confessions. Augustine says that he was so tormented, so miserable, so crushed, so sorrowful over his sense of the captivity to sin that he flung himself down at the foot of a fig tree and he began to weep streams of tears. He could not get out of it as hard as he tried. And he writes this, he says, I was weeping with the most bitter sorrow in my heart when all at once I heard the singing of the voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again, it repeated the refrain, take it and read. Take it and read. Tole tolelege." Tole At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which the children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. I seized and I opened the book containing Paul's epistles, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell." not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine goes on to say, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all of the darkness of doubt was suddenly dispelled. And then Augustine goes to his mother and he tells her of his conversion and she begins to praise God and she begins to glorify God saying, You, O Lord, are powerful enough, O God, and more than powerful enough to carry out your purpose beyond all of our hopes and all of our dreams. Well, the rest, as we say, is history. Augustine was baptized in 387 on Easter in Milan, and then eventually he makes his way back to North Africa. He was eventually ordained priest, and amid great public pressure, was made assistant to the bishop, and then they pushed him even further, the public did, and they they exhorted him. He finally he finally submitted to becoming bishop himself in the year 395. And Augustine preached in North Africa. Augustine pastored in North Africa. Augustine administrated, and most importantly, Augustine Augustine wrote. He wrote, in fact, so much that you can spend a lifetime just reading Augustine. And of course, we have those three of his most important works. The Confessions, his spiritual autobiography, the Trinity, which is his 15 books on the mystery of the oneness and plurality of God, and the city of God. This massive tome where Augustine decides to say just about anything he can possibly think of. Uh, and it takes a long way to make your way, make your way through that. Now, by the way, I had the privilege, when I was in fourth year of university, and in the English department of all places, I had the privilege of doing a reading study, a directed study on the city of God. Um, and uh, I thank the Lord for that time with Augustine. Augustine has shaped theology as we know it. Augustine has shaped theology as we know it. His influence over the past 2,000 years is simply immense, if not incalculable. As the old saying goes, everybody stands on the shoulders of Augustine. And this is certainly true for us tonight in the Protestant church. His distaste for the prolixity uh, of uh, Augustine aside Calvin was so captivated with and absorbed in Augustine that writing to his colleague Farrell in 1549, he simply says unaffectedly, you know with what respect I regard Augustine. For Calvin, Augustine was simply the chief, and he was the best, and he was the most faithful of the ancient fathers. And then there's Luther, Luther who himself was an Augustinian monk until he realized that the gospel set him free to drink good beer and to eat good food, and most importantly, realized that he was free to get a wife to make him good beer and good food. Uh, And uh, he tells us that Katie was the best brewer in all Germany. Well, Luther, Luther prized Augustine as a teacher of the doctrines of grace. In fact, Luther's problem with Erasmus, with whom he had a prolonged battle of words, Luther's problem with Erasmus was that he hadn't read Augustine well enough. Had he understood Augustine, Luther writes, Erasmus would have understood Paul. That we're not made righteous by doing just deeds, but rather in becoming righteous people, we then go forth to produce the fruits of righteousness. But in the 16th century, Augustine lay hidden. Just as much as he lays hidden today, I suppose. Luther even admits that in his own order, his own Augustinian order, it didn't do anything to steer him to the writings of Augustine. Devotion, he writes to my order, did not compel me to approve of the blessed Augustine. Before I'd stumbled upon his books, I had no regard for him in the least. But having read Augustine, Luther then goes on to discover the gospel. And it's so very true for us to recognize tonight that the Protestant Reformation was a revival of Augustinian theology. The Protestant Reformation was a revival of Augustinian theology. And as Anglicans tonight, it's so very important to understand that the Anglican Church is a revival of Augustinian theology. And that's not to say that Augustine comes across as a quintessential Protestant. He doesn't. There's significant passages in Augustine that would, would cause us to be very puzzled, that would be very, very foreign to us. But there's an emphasis in Augustine on the sovereignty of God and the helplessness of the sinner and the doctrines of grace that the reformers understood to be central to his thought and, more importantly, understood to be central to the gospel. And so we read in Augustine lines such as these, and I've taken some things now from his little manual of the Christian faith called The Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love. Speaking of the role of human merit in salvation, Augustine writes, it is only unmerited mercy that anyone is redeemed. It is only of unmerited mercy that any is redeemed. Or he writes, it is grace alone That separates the redeemed from the lost. Or this, he writes, this part of the human race to which God has promised pardon and a share in his eternal kingdom, can they be restored through the merit of their own works? Augustine answers, God forbid. For what good work can a lost man perform except so far as he has been delivered from perdition? Can they do anything by the free determination of their own will? Again, I say, God forbid. By grace you are saved. Through faith and lest men should arrogate to themselves the merit of their own faith. Remember, he writes, this too is the gift of God. Of God, You see, for Augustine, the will of the sinner is helplessly bound. It cannot rectify itself. It cannot heal itself. It cannot choose the good that it ought to choose. That precisely is the predicament of the sinner. God does not come, Augustine writes, in his saving might to an army of rebels who have the power to switch sides. He comes to an army of rebels who can do nothing but rebel against him. Listen again to what Augustine says. For as a man who kills himself must, of course, be alive when he kills himself. But after he has killed himself, ceases to live and cannot restore himself to life. So when man by his own free will sinned, then sin being victorious over him... The freedom of his will was lost. He, writes Augustine, who is the servant of sin, is free only to sin. Doesn't mean that the sinner can't build a beautiful society. It doesn't mean that the sinner can't build marvelous buildings and write profound poetry and beautiful philosophy and fight against injustice and build national parks for our country. It doesn't mean any of this. A man or a woman bound in sin can do all of this, but they cannot do it for the love of God. They cannot do it for the love of God's glory, which is the end for which all of us were made. A man, he writes, will not be free to do right, to love God and his word above all things, until, until being freed from sin, he becomes the servant of righteousness. And so then you can see for Augustine what salvation is all about. God comes in Christ to deliver a will. He comes to an individual to deliver a heart that cannot choose him. A will that is so imprisoned in sin, so in bondage that all it can do is serve itself. In our day, the mantra is that the human will is the sacred citadel that God dare not touch. God cannot coerce. God, on principle, it is said, has committed himself to staying outside of the great vault of the human heart. He knocks and he rings, and he may sing his wooing song at the window of our souls, but he dare not trespass the inviolable domain of the sovereign human will. (laughs) That is the great part of our theology today. But listen to what Augustine says. Who... Who will be so foolish and blasphemous as to say that God cannot change the evil wills of men, whichever, whenever, and wheresoever he chooses, and to direct them to what is good? Salvation is the rescue of the human heart. Salvation is the sovereign move of God by his spirit upon the human will, taking what is fundamentally and absolutely dead to God and raising it up to new life so that it may now love God more than anything else. Because salvation is not affected, writes the apostle Paul, by the one who wills. It's not affected by the one who runs, but it is affected by the one who shows mercy and who delights in mercy. So said Paul, so said Augustine, and so said all of the Orthodox reformers in the wake of Luther and Calvin. That's why, by the way, in our own Anglican Statement of Faith and the 39 Articles, they search so very clearly the bondage of the human will. We read in Article 10, The condition of humanity after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot, he cannot, he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith. He cannot call upon God. The sinner cannot call upon God. Wherefore, we have no power. To do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God going before us so that we may have a good will. And having a good will working within us, he moves and continues uh, to, to empower that will. In short, what our own Anglican tradition says, the need at hand is so profound that God must give us a new heart. He must give us a good will, one that is able to call upon God. Just before service tonight, I was coming lighting candles, and you see a number of these lovely candles here tonight, and and thank you for all of those who, who came and to put these forward. I was the one who lit some of them. Well, I came down to this one here, and I put the the lighter to that candle, and I I stuck the flame to the wick, and I waited and waited, and it wasn't coming to light. And I waited and waited, and it started to smell kind of funny. All of a sudden, I realized this isn't a real candle. This is a a battery-powered candle, which has a wick in it. But I could have put the flame to that candle all night long, and it would not have come to life. What is needed is a new candle. A new candle is needed. For that light to come on fire. It's the same in the matter of salvation. The old sinful human heart cannot want God. What is needed is a new heart. A new will that loves God more than anything else. But that's not the theology that's invoked today. That's not the popular theology of our day. Today, our refined taste wants to give a little more credit to the sinner, a little more credit to the lost. What Hamlet said with irony, we say with unequivocal affirmation. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. But Augustine brings us back to the biblical judgment on humanity. Quoting Ezekiel, Augustine says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The world, he writes, is drunk with the invisible wine of its own perverted, earthbound will. Intoxicated with itself, it has forgotten its creator, and it has loved the things that God has created rather than loving God. That is the predicament of the world. And now permit me just for a moment tonight to point out the significance of Augustine's theology to the mission of the church. What we face as a church is an impossible task. What we face is an impossible task. If it were a matter of persuading hearts and minds that could be aroused and inclined to the gospel and to the kingdom of God, then we could busy ourselves with all matter of of, um, uh, employments and tactics and consumer research and attractions to lure and to bait and to beckon unbelievers into the kingdom. But that's not how Augustine envisions it. The unconverted are not in a state to want God. They're held in a prison of unbelief that neither they nor we can open in everything for Augustine. Everything hangs upon the will of the Almighty. This is why, by the way, Augustine takes so very seriously the opening lines of our creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Nothing happens, Augustine writes. Nothing happens but by the will of the omnipotent. Nothing can happen but by the will of the omnipotent one. The heart cannot turn to God except by the exertion of of omnipotent power. Lazarus must be called forth out of the grave. The dead need to be brought to life, says Augustine. And so you see, I hope, where this places us as a church. It's not our persuasiveness. It's not how culturally savvy we are. It's not our pleasing aesthetic. It's not our eloquence or our superior wisdom. None of us can raise the dead. It is only the power of God. That's why the Apostle Paul refused to listen to the Greeks when he was coming. Do you remember when he was visiting Corinth? And he got in the phone beforehand and... He talked to the Corinthians and they said, Paul, we want you to come and to preach at Corinth and we want you, Paul, to be a a rhetorician. We want you to be an orator, Paul. Come on, Paul. Corinth really likes these things. They like their clever and their witty orators. Do your market research, Paul. I mean, come on, if you want to make an impact, give us some eloquence, Paul. Give us some wisdom. That will open their ears, Paul. And Paul refused it. He refused even to countenance the idea that their faith could stand on something as flimsy as his own wisdom, because he knew that genuine human faith must be created ex nihilo. It must be created from, from nothing and only in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so Paul stumbles into Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, but he also came with the gospel. And the message of a crucified Christ, and he came in the fullness and in the authority of the Spirit of God. You see, as a church, it's only when we fully realize the extent of human depravity, human sinfulness, human bondage and lostness, human opposition to God, that we will give ourselves exclusively to the only means by which we can save humanity, which is the preaching of the gospel of repentance. And faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel declared in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It is only, as with Augustine, seeing how really bad sin is, that we will truly look to the omnipotence of God. And then, and then we will realize there is nothing more important for us to do than to seek the face of God. Then we will realize as a church that there's nothing so important than to get in our faces in prayer and to call on the name of the Lord, that there's nothing more critical for the church than being owned by God in such a way that when we meet and when we proclaim the word, the demonstration of the Spirit's power comes because nothing else will raise the dead. Nothing else will change lives. Nothing else will take a young man bound Bound in sexual sin, and so changed his heart that now he prays, Oh Lord, I've learnt to love you too late. I've wasted all those years, Lord, oh beauty, at once so ancient and so new. I've learnt to love you too late. You called me, you cried aloud to me, you broke my barrier of deafness, you shone upon me, your radiance enveloped me. You put my blindness to flight. You shed your fragrance around me. I drew breath and now I gasp for sweet odor. I tasted you and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, O oh Lord, and now I am inflamed with the love of your peace. So church, my dear brothers and sisters, the Lord help us tonight to hear the voice of our elder brother, Augustine. The Lord help us to ponder his words, and the Lord help us where it's right to follow in his steps. So now let me close with a prayer by Augustine at the close of his great work on the Trinity. Please bow with me. O Lord my God, my one hope, listen to me, lest out of weariness I should stop wanting to seek you. But let me seek your face always and with ardor. Do yourself, give me strength to seek you. Having caused yourself to be found and having given me the hope of finding you more and more before you lies my knowledge and my ignorance. Where where you've opened to me, Lord, receive me as I come in. Where you've shut the door to me, open to me as I knock. Let me remember you. Let me understand you, Lord. Let me love you, oh my God. Increase these things in me until you make me anew entirely. In the name of the Father, in the name of the glorious Son, in the name of the comforting Holy Spirit, amen.